name's Kelly. If those of you who didn't know, most of you know me. And uh, so I got a chance to be invited to speak this morning. And actually, Matt gave out a long time ago, because we've been in John for a while, he gave out the list of the scriptures and, and when they would be taught. And uh, for maybe six months or something before that, I had seen something in the scripture we're going to look at this morning that was really opened my eyes. And I hope it'll open your eyes too if you haven't already seen what, what we're going to talk about. So I'd like you to turn with me in your phone, I don't know if I need to say Bible, to John 8. Okay, so as you're turning with me, with me I'm going to um, tell you something you might find in the footnotes in your Bible. And that is um, that there, this scripture is one of those scriptures that if you look in the footnotes, it says it's not found in most of the manuscripts. Uh-oh, what do we do with that? And I literally called my pastor, Matt, and said, what do we do with that? What should I say? And, um, and here's, here's what we talked about, but also what our uh, study Bible talked about. Um, so, so how does that happen? How does a scripture get in there if it's not in the early manuscripts? Well, first of all, I don't know if you've learned about apologetics about this, but the, uh, the scriptures, the New Testament and Old Testament, are amazing because there is more original manuscripts that are found. Get this, tw over 20,000 uh, or 25,000 complete or fragmented Greek Latin or other ancient language manuscripts have been found more than, by far more than any other uh, work of antiquity. So when we're looking at something, it's not just like there's one strange manuscript, you know, who knows if that has any relevance. And we could compare manuscripts to manuscripts and know, know the consistency because the people were very careful in how they copied things down. And so that's pretty exciting. But then you'll find this that was maybe added later. So what did we do with that? First of all, um, it's wise to not build a whole doctrine around that scripture. Second of all, we want to look, does it fit the consistency of what the, we things in the re, see in the rest of scripture in terms of the themes and the concepts, in terms of the character of Jesus? So when we're reading this and we're thinking about this, does this seem Jesus-y? Is this the kind of thing you would, you would expect Jesus to do or not do? If it doesn't fit it, then maybe we, we want to have less confidence in it. But I think, and you, when you look at this, I think it's, so much like what we would see in the rest of the scriptures. And there's other parallel scriptures, not about this story, but other things. So um, let's look at this. The other thing that we, um, it, we can realize is that in, uh, in ancient times, most of what was passed on from generation to generation was passed on orally. And so it's very possible, very likely, that a story was told because it happened, and then it wasn't put in the original, uh, John didn't record it, in his gospel, but it was recorded, in, and then later on, people telling the story, it got added in. And so we need to look at, is it consistent? Um, does it fit? And if it seems to, then maybe there's some things we can learn about it that, that are supported in the rest of Scripture. So we're going to look at the Scripture if you can. We're actually starting in, in verse 53, the end of chapter 7, and I think we'll put it up here, but hopefully you're there um, with me if you're not. And there should be the, there it is. So it's a pretty long Scripture. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. 
and the law, of, uh, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. And then they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of this very dramatic moment and how you responded to the woman, how you responded to the Pharisees, how they were setting this trap for you. And in, in your marvelous wisdom, you were not able to not only get out of the trap, but you also revealed to us another example of your grace, of your mercy, uh, but also of your uh, fidelity to holiness. And, um, and as we were praying this morning, realized that everyone who came that day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the woman, no matter how they came, they left with a sense of your call on their lives with either conviction or grace and mercy. And so I pray that you would allow us to hear from you as we see how you acted here. We would hear from you um, mercy or conviction of sin or whatever you would have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. I've titled this message, How Can We Get It So Wrong When We Think We're So Right? I think one of the dangers of this is that we live in a culture of outrage. How many would agree with that? Divisiveness. We live in a culture marked by growing tribalism where we often align ourselves more with who, what we're against than what we're for. So in some ways, we may be able to relate to the, the moral outrage and the mob mentality of this group of religious leaders determined to take a righteous stand against moral decay. On the other hand, we also live in a secular culture that highly values individual freedom and tolerance. The public shaming and harsh judgment of this woman doesn't very, sit very well with our modern sensibilities. So it's easy to read this and shake our heads at the narrow-minded judgmental Pharisees. We can easily dismiss this story as mean Pharisees versus nice, tolerant Jesus. A while back I read this, probably about eight months ago or something, and I pondered this question. How'd they end up, these are teachers of the law and Pharisees, how'd they end up being so wrong when they thought they were so right? Should have they known better? In our religious zeal, do we ever do the same thing and make the same mistake? We're convinced we're right. We have God's word on our side, and yet we actually are so wrong. So if we read the story as how evil the Pharisees were and fail to learn from them, 
then we will likely repeat the same error. So I want to pick someone close to you, or some ones, just like one or two, and, um, and quickly discuss. What did they have right? And I want you to think about from an Old Testament Jewish perspective, not from a New Testament New Covenant. What did they get right? What did they have right? And what did they have wrong? What could have they known differently, but what did they get right? Quick discussion. Go. You have two minutes. Okay. I know that some of you have 10, 20 more things that they got wrong. Um, or maybe you'd have, you see nothing they did wrong. They got it all right. Maybe that's, that's it. Um, so, so I really want you to ponder this. And, and sometimes with the message, you feel like um, it's really targeted for Brisa or somebody, you know, for just a certain person. Well, no, a message that's about like moral perfection or beauty or something about might be about somebody but other messages you feel like it fits everybody and so in this case I, I really believe it's it's one of those that's very easy to think that it doesn't really apply because we're not doing the same thing as the Pharisees um, but I really believe that it can apply to all of us and so we've, we've really um, I've looked at uh, I have seven different things that are under the category of how we can get it so wrong and, and what I want to encourage you, especially if you're taking notes, is to write those down. And, and as we're talking about that, maybe rate yourself. Does this fit you? Like on a one to three scale. Like three, like, yeah, I do this so often. I do this in my counseling a lot. We, we um, have self-evaluation. Or, no, this doesn't fit me very much at all. I'm going to give myself a zero or a one. Okay, you follow that? Um, and if you're not taking notes, then just in your own heart. Because really what, I, what I'm hoping will happen is that all of us will leave, like everyone there in this scene, they left with something, with conviction of their sin, or with sense of God's wonderful mercy, but they left with something from God. So let's, let's um, hope that can happen. Okay, so what'd they get right? Well, they got a few things right. In uh, Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, adultery is strictly forbidden, and the penalty is death. What that tells us is that adultery is very serious. It made the, God's top ten list of sins, right? Adultery is a serious sin. It defiles marriage. Adultery breaks covenant. Adultery destroys the family. Adultery is evil. Whatever the reasons, whatever the cause, adultery is an evil thing that harms many, many people. And so God, uh, God did not wink at it. Jesus here does not wink at it, as we'll see. And so when they caught this woman in the very act, it could appear that they were rightly applying the law of Moses. I'm sure that they were convinced that they were doing a very righteous act, yet they ended up walking away in shame. So this brings us to the big question. Here's our question that we're going to deal with this morning. You can write this. How can we get it so wrong when we know we are so right? I believe this is happening in our culture more than I've ever seen with Christians. Those other Christians, right? <laughs> so number one, how we can get so wrong when we think we're so right is when we rush to judgment. It appears in this story that the woman caught in the very act was quickly brought to Jesus. And made to, he was, she was made to stand in front of them in her shame. 
There is no indication of careful deliberation among the Pharisees like there is in some other stories, other situations. We don't even know the context of the situation. We don't know her background, do we? We don't even know if it was of her free will. Jesus later says, go and leave your life of sin. So there is something about it. But we don't even know in that situation, was it uh, of her free will? So don't rush to judgment. After 61 years, that's my age, believe it or not, I'm finally learning when I'm presented a crisis or upsetting situation, the first thing to do is nothing. <laughs> no, we're, we're the right answer, okay? The, the first thing to do is nothing. Instead of immediately speaking, speaking or acting, I'm beginning to learn to respond, that I respond with much more grace and wisdom when I take the time to seek the way of Jesus, who continually sought the leading of his Father. We need to first pray, be quick to listen, slow to speak, wait for direction, from the Holy Spirit, apply, apply biblical principles, seek godly counsel from others, especially your spouse, if you're me. That almost always works. In contrast, I want you to picture this. In contrast, the Pharisees, they, they find this woman and they rush to, I want you to get the picture here, they're rushing, stones in hand, ready to apply the law of Moses to Jesus. Here she is, we caught her in the very act, there's no question. What do we do? What do we do? Picture this. This is like, this is like a, a, a racial protest we had a few years ago, and they, they drag maybe a policeman who, they say, we caught him in the very act of beating this innocent black man. Right here, we caught him, and there's a mob. What does Jesus do? What does he do? It's an incredible thing. What does he do? He gets down on the ground and he writes something. What? There's a mob waiting to kill this woman and he's not reacting. At least in a direct way. We don't even know what he wrote. In fact, apologists would see this as one of those examples that it's really a a great point in the authenticity of a story that when there's details that don't have any relevance to the story, really. What did he write? If you make up a myth, you make up a story, you don't give a details that don't fit the point of the story. So it actually is an indicator that there's something, that this is a real story. Why'd they include that? Because that's the person who observed it saw that's what happened. Why? Did, I don't know. But that's what happened. So can we trust the scripture? Not on that alone, but that gives an indicator that maybe it's very, very real. So wait. Consider what the Lord would have you do. Number two, how can we get it so wrong when we know we are so right? When we apply justice unequally. Many of you may have thought this, especially the women. Where is the man? Even then, adultery involved two people. In the law of Moses, by the way, I looked at it, but I wasn't really sure. 
law of Moses, it said that both the man and the woman will be, should be executed. Both. There's no favoritism. And there's also a clear provision in some other verses in that same, same area, some other verses that if the woman is innocent because she cries out or she's in the country and she, nobody could hear her, um, she is spared. He is still punished. So where is the man? Does he have more social status? More money? Or is he perhaps a religious leader and they need to cover it up? Not that that's ever happened. So even as they claim we're holding to the law of Moses, they're only applying half the law. So we get so wrong when we don't We don't follow God's ways equally. We don't when we give favoritism, it says in James. Number three, how do we get it so wrong we think we're so right? When our motivation is to win a power struggle. Does that relate to anything in our culture? We get it so wrong. It says in verse 6, the Pharisees were really just trying to set this up as a trap, set up Jesus. Like the healing of the pool in the, on the Sabbath in John 5, they were less concerned about the person involved as they were about setting Jesus up and, and, and um, proving that he was breaking the law. So here's the trap. Would Jesus stand up for the law of God and condemn the woman, or would he let his well-known compassion produce compromise and protect her, but thereby break the law? Either way, they had him. In chess, they call this a fork. Either you lose your knight or you lose your queen. Either way, you're going to lose an important piece. They had him. The law could win or grace could win, but Jesus would have to choose. They didn't know that Jesus plays 3D chess, okay? <laughs> he could come at it from another angle. I really believe that it's one of the most common errors in critical thinking is, is black and white thinking or dichotomous thinking. In the zeal to trap Jesus, the teachers of the law set up a false dichotomy. But the word of God actually doesn't do that. Rather, it, um, it reveals paradox, justice and mercy, grace and truth, sovereignty and free will. The law of Moses lays down the patterns of right and wrong and punishment, but it also lays down provisions for atonement. And the prophets further reveal that God, God's heart for redemption. Isaiah 55 says, Let the wicked man forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Not just the New Testament, it's there in Isaiah. Where was the Pharisee to stand up and say, brothers, remember the prophet Isaiah? Where were they? And they teachers of the law, maybe they could have remembered the story of Jonah and Nineveh. That God said, you're done. Judgment is coming now. He didn't say if, it's going to happen. And Jonah went and, and, and told them the judgment is coming. He didn't even tell them to repent. He just said judgment's coming. And... 
then they all repented. And God changed his thinking, and he relented and didn't destroy them. And then Jonah was kind of mad about that. Okay? There's another... um, And then another one, one of those powerful verses or or sections, Uh, the prophet uh, Hosea. Hosea is told by God, one of the craziest, strangest things, to marry a prostitute. I haven't heard any guys volunteer for that. Marry a prostitute. Worse than that, her name was Gomer. Okay, two strikes against her. So so he's supposed to marry the prostitute. Okay. And then maybe that's going to change her and everything and somehow symbolize something. And, and so he marries her, brings her home, and then she goes back to her prostitution. And he brings her back, and she goes back. There's a, there's a movie that was, that's a kind of an allegory of that called Redeeming Love in a book that's fantastic that came out recently. Um, uh, just kind of uh, uh, illustrating this, this idea. So, this, this whole thing with Hosea was supposed to be a living parable of God's heart and action toward the adultery of faithless Israel. And Tim Keller, I love this. I just read this recently. He says that God has been in the longest, worst marriage in history, yet he continues to love his bride. That's, his, that's God's heart. It's for redemption. Yes, he's against sin because it hurts us, but he's for redemption. He's for bringing us back. That's the call. Where is the Pharisee reminding them of that? Jesus, is there any way that we could restore her? Do we have to use this law? Because we see in other things the, 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 the love of God, the mercy of God. So everlasting, everlasting. But they didn't because they're consumed by the desire to win the power struggle. And they're blinded to the rest of it. How can we get it wrong when we know we're so right? When fixation over one virtue or sin causes us to forget or ignore other aspects of God's character. Kind of what we were talking about, but I want to be specific. When we get our eyes on winning a religious, political, or personal battle, we often neglect to follow the complete heart of God. It's easy to obsess about one area of righteousness and neglect other areas. As Jesus told the Pharisees, you tithe mint and dill, but you neglect the weightier things of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We are living in a time of unbelievable, rapid, and radical cultural change. Can you relate to that? I've never seen anything like this in my 61 years. America spiraling away from a nation deeply embedded with Christian principles of law, education, government, and morality to an upside-down world where evil is good and good is evil. And I think most of us as Christians, traditional morality and beliefs are just reeling and spinning and it's dizzy and we're saying, God, what do we do? The battle for the soul of the nation has also broken all boundaries of decency and civility on all sides. There's no rules of good fighting that that people are following. And like the Pharisees in this story, many believers have become so desperate to fight for God's ways 
that we have become blind to our own defilement of his ways. Do you see that? Do you see that in yourself sometimes? Years ago, when I was a young guy like Ben, and I loved God's word, I started studying apologetics, and I was studying about dealing with the cults, which this, this one expert called the mission field on your doorstep. So I studied about Mormonism and about Jehovah's Witnesses and, and other cults and, and learned an approach and how to deal with them, what was wrong in their theology and so forth. And, uh, and one day, some Jehovah, Jehovah Witnesses came walking down the street and they headed into the neighbor's house across the street to Kathleen's house, who was um, older, an older lady. And something rose up in me. Nobody comes into my neighborhood and deceives an older woman. And so I went, I, you know, but Jehovah's Witnesses have people usually shut the, blade, the, the blinds and lock the doors, but I opened the door and went across the street. And I started sharing with them and started debating with them, and they had had enough after a few minutes, and they started walking away. I was like, don't walk away from me. And I literally... <laughs> I literally was, like, walking after him. I walked down the whole block, quoting scripture. Okay? <laughs> Diana said, no, no. But I was quoting scripture and telling them how wrong their theology was. I really let them have it. I was defending the kingdom. Or so I thought. For some reason, they didn't come back. They didn't repent. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's so easy. What did Jesus do in contrast? Was that his method? Chasing after people? No, he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone wants to sup with me, Open the door, I'll come in. He's a gentleman. He said, follow me. I could have done, used that strategy. If you want to know the truth, follow me. I don't think it would have worked very well either, but it would have been more, more Jesus-like. You guys follow? So we could think we're right. I thought I was right. I was kind of proud of myself. We didn't have people come for a while for some reason. <laughs> So, years ago, there's a pro-life leader that still lives in town named Jim Anderson, who I had a lot of respect for. And I learned from him this idea that when you're fighting the dragon, you need to be careful you don't take on the spirit of the dragon or you become the dragon. We have lost sight of the greater call to, the, to be faithful representatives of Christ and have created an image of Christianity that is, in many ways, the polar opposite of the example and teachings of Jesus. Jesus said, we have strained a gnat and swallowed a camel. I believe that political idolatry and syncretism in the church, both on the left and the right, has produced greater harm to the gospel and witness of Christ than any attack from the secular culture. The problem is less out there and more in here. 
It's more how I'm responding and the body of Christ is responding to the crazy things that are happening. Does it mean we don't respond? No. But we need to respond in, in a way that, that shows the, the holiness of God, but shows the grace and mercy of God, shows the character of God. How can we get it wrong when we know we are so right? Fifth one, we put the principle of God before the people. Principle before people. We must never forget the very center of God's character. It, his essence itself is love. It's the core of the two great commandments. So it's easy in our struggle um, to contend for ministry, church, family, business, theology, ideology, ideology, sorry, or cause, to value the vision or the way it should be, more than the people involved. Now, I particularly have a love, and you may pick it up when I'm preaching or something. I have a love for concepts and systems. I believe that God has given me an analytical gift to conceive of systems and or methods to build a work that produces fruit. And through, through different arenas in my teaching and coaching and, and pastoring, I was a youth pastor for a while, and... Uh, and counseling, I have seen results by applying those principles and the vision that I, that I have, that I get, and how to put things together. However, I have sometimes been so fixated on the principles or structure that I have neglected to be sensitive to the needs of the, and, of the very people and the values of the very people that the, the thing is for. I have hurt some people some of you, probably some of you. I've neglected or overlooked relationships with others and missed the opportunity to deeply influence because I valued ideas over relationships. So I apologize. Because the biggest ideas, the biggest idea is love. And it's not a sacrifice of one for the other. How can we get it so wrong when we know we're so right? Sixth one, when we fail to inspect ourselves. And this is the clearest point. The Pharisees came with a very clear idea of what sin was, and there she was. Very clear. And they weren't wrong in their assessment of the woman. But, they were fixated on that, and they failed to use it to inspect themselves. You know, when you know about some leader or some brother or some, some person in the, in the church that has been exposed, been caught, you know what our response should be? It should be created me a clean heart. See if there's any hurtful way in me. It should lead us to brokenness, to humility. Galatians 6 is a powerful parallel verse, I believe. 6 1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, should restore him gently. Restore is the purpose. Gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Paul is saying the mature way to deal with a brother caught in a sin is to gently try to restore him. But first of all, inspect your own life. Before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, look to see the plank that's in your own. 
And what's beautiful about this is it actually says how we're supposed to deal with sin. It doesn't say don't do it. It really says that first, order of events, first, take the plank out of your own eye. Look at your own stuff. Repent of that. Then you will see clearly to be able to take the speck. Have you ever tried to take something out of somebody's eye? Who's done that? I got something in my eye. And so you get your finger or tweezers or something. You better. You better be careful, right? Hey, let me let me grab that. Here, you know, do your eye, where's your eye on? No, you got to be so careful. Diana, I know what she would say. Let me get my glasses on to see clearly. Okay, don't do it if you got stuff in your own eyes. The Pharisees who dragged the woman. May have, all the, uh, may have all been innocent of physical adultery, but that Jesus turned the question about adultery specific to the question of sin in general. Suddenly, the spotlight would turn on them. I just love this. They fell into their own trap. Jesus, there's sin in our midst. And he turned the spotlight around on them. Whoa. And then, um, what, did, what did Jesus do? Well, he reminded them that God, who the law who says, who, that forbids adultery, also forbids um, forbids coveting and, and lying and not honoring your parents. And Jesus says later, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. And he raised the bar. He said, murder is, or, or hatred of your brother, or cursing your brother is equivalent of murder, and lust is equivalent of adultery. Now, I love it in this story that they left, the Pharisees left one by one, and who left first? The oldest. Yeah, I can relate, not just being old, because there's so many things. I have no question. I've, you know, I have a load of sin and with every commandment, okay? No, no question for me. <laughs> I'm out, okay? I've had a lot of life to sin a lot. That's why I'm the most sin, one of the most sinful people in the room because of that. Anyway, okay, last one. How can we get it so wrong when we think we're so right? When we mistake the mercy of God for the permission of God. One of the problems with reading this story from the context of our culture is that we highly value tolerance and undervalue holiness. Jesus does not excuse sin or become tolerant of it. His final words to the woman is, go now and leave your life of sin. I think most of us in this culture would read it as Jesus forgives, Jesus, you know, is nice to people, and sin is not a big deal. No, he says, go leave your life of sin. Over time, some churches, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but churches, you could divide churches or denominations or movements into two kind of categories. One emphasizes holiness and the, and, and the law. And it moves, it tends to move towards legalism. While others focus on compassion and compromise standards of holiness. Fortunately, we can avoid either error. How, how do we avoid it? By following Jesus. The teaching examples of Jesus. If we truly follow him, he'll lead us to a greater mercy, deeper repentance, and truer holiness. I want to close with just a statement in a verse and just let you let it just sit in your heart. 
I'm convinced that we are living in the time of war. Our nation, our churches, our families are under attack. It's not peacetime. I've never seen as much deception. I've never seen as much falling away. I've never seen as much confusion in, in people of God. This is a time of war. But we are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. So we must not fight as the world does. As ambassadors of the king, we must learn his ways, both his holiness and his grace. As the apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, may you become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Not too long ago, Diane and I were hit with a, with a challenge in our lives that was challenging how we were going to respond to a really intense, complex situation. What do we do? What do we do? And we grabbed on to this and a few other verses, but this verse. God, I want, we, want to, we want to be blameless and pure in this. We want to respond in the way you, you would respond. We want to respond to the pain in, our, in this generation, to the pain that we're seeing. We want to respond in a way that we would shine like stars in the universe holding out the word of life. A beautiful truth to so whether people receive it or they reject it. They would receive and, or, or reject. The way of Christ, the person, the character, the presence of God. So we've been contending for God's presence. This is an hour we need to have those that are contending for God's presence. Not just fighting this issue or that issue or blaming this or, or persecuting that. Or, or accepting everything. We need to contend for the truth of God. We need to contend for the holiness of God. We need to contend for the, the mercy and the beauty of God. We need to learn his ways. I was a Christian for years and, and knew lots of the Bible, but I realized one day, probably about five years ago, I don't know his ways because I was challenged with the situation that was so hard. I need to know the ways of Christ, how to respond. When others aren't responding rightly, how do I respond? And if we do this, then like the adulterous woman brought to Jesus, those near us will feel both highly valued and deeply challenged to live their life of sin. I mean, to leave their life of sin. People will be highly valued and deeply challenged to leave their life of sin. Lord God, we pray that you would convict us of the, whatever the ways are that we get it wrong and have us long to follow you to listen to you to follow your example both in holiness and in mercy that we could shine like stars in the universe and hold out the word of life uh.